You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Okay, so now we're con- continuing on with the book of Genesis, and it's not bread, but a book. And last week we looked at the big Bible overview. And I really encourage you to listen to that or watch that if you haven't done so already. Really, really helpful. But what we learned last week is that the Bible is really, although it is lots and lots and lots of books, it's made up of just one story. From beginning to end, made up of one story. And we can call that a redemptive history. And what that means is that the unfolding events in Scripture, all the stories that we read, God uses them to redeem his people from sin. And ultimately, that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, so that we would know and worship Jesus, so that we can dwell in God's presence once again. Because last week we thought initially how in the Garden of Eden, Adam was given an instruction by God that he was able to live with God as long as he obeyed God. Adam was able to to work, but he failed, he sinned. And mankind could have been wiped out there in the spot, but God offers grace in Genesis 3.15. And we call that the covenant of grace, this promise of a seed or an offspring that's going to bring us great hope. And we need to understand this wide narrative, this redemptive history. It's just one story from beginning to end. All of scripture makes sense. It all fits together and it all points to one person, Jesus Christ and his cross. So he would save sinners like me and you. But in Genesis 3.15, in your Bible will be translated offspring, but it's really seed. And well, I wonder on the screen here, are you able to tell the difference between a pink lady apple tree and a Granny Smith apple tree. You'll see that both the sets of leaves are green when they're in blossom here. Both sets of flowers are white with a tinge of, of pink on the outside. It's really, really hard to tell the difference. An eagle eye might spot the leaves are slightly different, but you would really need to know your apples and your apple trees to spot the difference, wouldn't you? I wonder what do you think, which is which, Pink Lady or Granny Smith? Well, on the right, as you see it there, is the Granny Smith apple tree, and then on the left, the Pink Lady. See, we wouldn't really know what that seed had become if we had planted it and the tree had grown. We, we need to let it develop, and over only whenever we see the fruit, would you or I be able to tell the difference between these trees, perhaps? Maybe that's the case for us in Genesis 3.15 with this seed. We need to see it develop so that it will be more and more clear to us what fruit it is or who this seed is as the case is in Genesis 3. See apples, the fruit is only ready to pick when the seeds in the centre are dark again. If they're white they're not ready in the middle. And it seems as we read Genesis that the seed is white as it were it's not quite ready to be picked it's not quite reached its full potential or fruition and as we read genesis and the old testament we get the glimpse of that seed is not quite ready until we meet jesus 
Genesis 3.15 is the beginning uh, of this promise in Scripture. And God is going to fulfill his promise, this promise of redemption. And we trace this development right through all of Scripture. But Genesis, as you know, is full of many, many stories. And often we know all these stories from Sunday school. We know them as individual stories. Uh, Jacob, Isaac, Joseph and his coats and his dreams, Abraham, Noah and his ark. But sometimes we think that these are just random stories pieced together. We're not quite sure how they all fit in together, how they all ultimately are part of this redemption plan of God pointing us to Jesus. Sometimes we think the Bible is a wee bit like hey, these dice here that these encounter a played with uh, at the time. You roll a cube and you get a picture and you have to t put the pictures in some sort of order in order to tell a story. So here I have a clock, a, a man uh, and a crown and I would have to come up with a story. I could say when the the, the clock struck 12, the man ran away to try and find his princess, okay? I guess you could say that's Cinderella's story, but we've all these, sometimes we think the Bible's just these random images, these stories that don't really fit together, but they do. So tonight, as we look at the book of Genesis, please, please have your Bible beside you as we look at this together. As we look closely at a couple of themes as well, what we can watch out for as we read Genesis, and as we read the read of the Old Testament, you might have a specific question. Please contact us and let us know and we can answer them. Maybe not in person, as the case looks like it's going to be, but we can still answer them. Firstly tonight, let's have an overview of Genesis. And I wonder if someone asked you to describe Genesis in one sentence, how you would do it. So if you're watching with someone at home, take a minute here, and try and describe to the other person, or on your, if you're on your own, to yourself, how would you describe Genesis in one sentence? How would you describe Genesis in one sentence? You know, it's a really hard thing to do, isn't it? And you can come back to that at the end, and maybe you'll be able to answer it a little bit better. But for me, it maybe would be, God creates a good world, but man spoils it with sin. But there is hope in the seed to defeat Satan. That's maybe what I would give it as a sentence. But Genesis, as we look at the book and have this quick overview, is divided into two parts or sections. The first part is in chapters 1 through to 11, where we have a history of the world. Where we are really focusing on creation and the terrible consequences of sin. The first thing we see in the Bible and in Genesis is creation, isn't it? What an opening line there is to Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is hope for this world, even in this very sentence. You know, some believe that in the beginning there is nothing. There is nothing before and there will be nothing afterwards. Life is just nothing. Life is just pointless and hopeless and meaningless. Others think it's chaotic, a big bang and a bit of luck. Chaos in the beginning, chaos now as we've seen this week. And no, more, no law is more important than any other. There's no guide or reason for this life. It's just chaos. But that isn't what the Bible says. 
in the beginning God. Glenn Scribner asked the question, what was there in the beginning? He says the answer changes everything. He says the answer is love. Love is where we come from. Love is what shapes us, our lives and our future. That's what he says. The God of love overflows like a fountain brimming with life. We are the planned offspring of the God of love and he longs to share his life with us. That's what we see in the very first words of scripture. In the beginning, God, we see God's love that we are the planned offspring of this God of love. And in creation, God creates mankind and they're given the instruction to fill the earth, but all is not good, sure it's not. Because after creation, we have the fall and sin. We have mankind sinning. We see sin entering the world through Adam and so now all humans are sinful. And as we work through these next chapters in scripture, we see more and more sin. Just lift your Bible and follow along with me. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 9, or verse 8, or this verse 9. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. We have murder. Then into verse 19, Lamech took two wives. We have sexual immorality. And then we continue on to Noah, who we studied really recently. Chapter 6 and verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on earth. Every intention of their thoughts of their hearts was evil continually. We have sin, more sin and more sin. And with the, the fall of man we have the flood. Where it's like God is like recreating the world all over again. And then, But God gives us this common grace that he won't destroy it in this way again. And then after the story of Noah and the flood. In chapter 11 we see more sin. The history of the world, the Tower of Babel, where we're told that all the all the nations were from. Oh, in chapter eleven, verse nine, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and the Lord dispersed them over all the earth. We have the history of the world, if you like, in Genesis one to eleven, and if you like, as we I've flicked through that and as you read Genesis, these first 11 chapters, it's almost as if we are sitting on top of the world looking down on the whole thing. We're looking down at all that what has happened. But in chapter 12, we have in chapter 11, the end of chapter 11, we have this family tree. And it acts as like a zoom lens, as a camera, as a satellite image. So that we zoom right down in on one man. We were at top looking down at it all, but now we're going to zoom right down in on one person and his family. And chapters 12 to 15, it really is a focus on the family. And these chapters are really the well-known chapters of Genesis, aren't they? We have the life of Abraham, which you find in chapters 12 to 25 or so. We have the life of Jacob. In chapters the 25 to 37 and then we really have at the end a significant portion handed over to Joseph 
and the life of Joseph. And in these stories we have sibling rivalry, deception, dreams and a really, really good pot of lentil soup and a fancy coat. There is so much content. There is a year's worth of sermons in these chapters. But what we're going to do right now is to look at some of the themes or the patterns, some of the things that we can look out for. So that firstly, that you would know God better, that you would see his glory in scripture and how it points to the cross of Jesus. And secondly, that as you read Genesis, as the stories are pieced together, I pray that it would help you in understanding God's word in Genesis and throughout the Bible. So let's look at these themes in Genesis. What is a theme? Well, if you do an A-level in English or history or GCSE, you might look at a book or a, a time frame in history and see the themes that run through that time period or a piece of writing. A theme is like a plot going through a book. Really, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, it's a, an idea that reoccurs in or pervades a work of art or literature, something that keeps coming up and up and up. So there are two things I want you to watch out for as you read Genesis, and even the rest of the Old Testament too. And both have the origins really in Genesis 3, 15. The first thing, the first theme is the theme of seed. The seed or the offspring in Genesis 3, 15. And something you should know about the word seed in Hebrew is that it's like our word sheep. If I said I have sheep, it could be plural or singular, couldn't it? I could have one sheep on its own or I could have hundreds of sheep. And it's a wee bit like the word seed or offspring in Genesis. So Genesis 3.15 talks about an offspring. It's both many, many people and the individual one. He will bruise your head. Another thing about seed, as we read it in Genesis, is that seed was really associated with blessing. There's that anticipation that there's going to be a seed that's going to bring blessing to many, many people. So this is an idea that is repeated throughout Seed or offspring, the importance of God sustaining the family line of this offspring is so important. And we would often expect maybe that blessing, that inheritance to go to the firstborn, as is common in the custom then and even today still. But as we follow this theme of seed, there will be many surprises on the way. There will be many surprises. So in Genesis 4, let's turn to our Bibles again and let's work our way through very quickly. In Genesis 4, we have the battle between two offspring. That's really interesting. Genesis 3, there's going to be two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. They aren't literal seed of the serpent. Satan couldn't reproduce, but it's people that don't trust God. Okay, And here we have... Cain born, he's the eldest, and then Abel is born. But Abel, well, he seems to be the chosen one because God favours his worship. Cain, you could say, was not the seed of the woman, but the seed of serpent. And what does the serpent want? The serpent always wants to defeat the seed. It looks like Abel is going to be the one, but 
Abel's not the one because Cain kills Abel. But there's a replacement seed in chapter 4 and 25. Eve says, God has appointed for me another offspring. So it's not going to be Cain, Seth. This seed, the hope is in Seth. Maybe Seth would be the one that would defeat Satan. It's that initial hope. But we know that it points forward to Jesus. But now in Genesis 5, in verse 28 and 29, Lamech names his son Noah. Why? Because Lamech hopes that Noah would be the one that brings rest. One of the curses was that they had to toil and work the ground. And Lamech hopes that Noah is the one that's going to be rest. He's the seed. And then in Genesis 12, and we'll think about this later, we have the, the promise to Abraham. See, Abraham is promised this offspring. But Sarah is barren. Abraham's desperate, so he sleeps with Hagar and has a son, Ishmael. But eventually, he has a son through his wife, Sarah. And, well, it's not Ishmael that's blessed, it's Isaac. Ishmael was his oldest son, but it's Isaac who is blessed. Then we move on to Isaac. and Well, Isaac marries, but again his wife is barren. God must fulfill his promise. And he opens up her, her womb and she has sons, Esau and Jacob. Again, and we studied this a couple of years ago, you would expect the birth rate of the eldest one. But Jacob, although he tricks Esau, he, he does receive the, the, the blessing of the inheritance of the seed. So it's not Esau, but Jacob. And then Jacob, well, he has many, many sons, doesn't he? And the seed, we know, is the one that's going to bring this hope, this blessing. As we read Genesis, it really looks like it's Joseph, doesn't it? Joseph is the one whose brothers uh, send off in hope of never seeing again. But it is Joseph that brings blessing, that brings food towards the end. Joseph, in chapter 48 of Genesis, he's, he brings his sons to Jacob to bless. Manasseh and Ephraim. And Manasseh is the older one, but Ephraim is the one that gets the greater blessing. And Ephraim, well, eventually from that tribe, is where Joshua is from. And Joshua is a really important figure. And it really looks like it has to be Joseph. He clearly is the standout candidate here, isn't he? How God used him. How God sustained him and kept him and looked after him. But in Genesis, just as we were introduced to Joseph and his wonderful coat, the rest of the book will follow Joseph except for one chapter. Chapter 38. Turn with it with me very, very quickly. Genesis 38. It's the story of Judah and Tamar. That awful story where Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law. But he has twins. And he names them Perez and Zerah. Why on earth is the Bible tell us about this story? Turn to Genesis 49 and verse 8. Genesis 49 and verse 8. This is what Jacob says when he blesses his sons. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down uh, before you. 
Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall the obedience of all the peoples. It, as we read Genesis 49, it seems really clear that Judah is getting the greater blessing from his father Jacob. That there's going to be a king come from Judah's line. And later, check out Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus. We have Judah, the father of Perez and Zerubbabel, Tamar. That is why chapter 38 is in our Bibles. Because it points to the lion of Judah, the lamb that was slain. It points, yes, to King David, but it also points to Jesus. The scepter will never be taken out of his hand. King Jesus reigns and rules forever. The Old Testament hope was that there would be an offspring, a seed that would connect them to the future. The Old Testament hope was a salvation that was going to be achieved through one person who was going to come for them. That offspring, that seed promised in Genesis 3, that was going to defeat Satan. Could it be Abel? No, he was murdered. Was it Seth? No. Is it Abraham or Jacob or Judah or Joseph? No. It is Jesus. We could look back on God having provided the, the promised child throughout Genesis, pointing to the promised child of Jesus. Do you know why there's the website Ancestry.com where you try and piece together your family's history, try and where they're from, where they've been, how, how uh, many cousins you have before you reach the Queen and all of that. And their tagline is discover your family's history. Discover your family's history or story. You see, in the Bible, that is where we find our family. That's where we find or discover our family's history. Are we part of the promised seed? Are we one of Eve's children or Abraham's children? Are we one of Jesus' children through faith in him? Or are we one of the serpent's children that will be destroyed forever? The offspring promised to Abraham is singular and plural. It points to one in Jesus. But through faith in him, we are all children of Abraham. We are all his offspring because of the promised seed of Jesus. The other thing that was really closely linked with the seed is the idea here of our theme of covenant. Theme of covenants. Last week we looked at Genesis 3.15 and see how it develops. And now we turn to really Genesis 12. But as we look at these covenants, we remember that throughout the Bible, we get a, a picture of Jesus, a picture of a redeemer, a seed, an offspring that is deeper and richer in our understanding. But we turn now to Genesis 12. And well, what I want you to do at home is just take a moment here. And look at Genesis chapter 11 and verse 4. And then compare it with Genesis 12 and verse 2. Okay, so Genesis 11 verse 4 says this. 
Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. Then Genesis 12, 2. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. What do you notice there? I wonder, did you notice this? For the idea of being, in chapter 11, being dispersed, that people are going to be scattered. But rather, God's going to make Abraham a nation, people that are gathered. But then also, what are the people saying to themselves in the Tower of Babel? Let us, let us make a name for ourselves. But what does God say to Abraham? God's, or Abraham at this point, I will make your name great. Mankind will try and make the name great and will fail. God will work and make Abraham's name great. In Genesis 12, John Stott says this about these verses. It may be truly said without exaggeration that not only the rest of the Old Testament but the whole of the New Testament are an outworking of these promises of God. That's what John Stott says of Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. So let's look at them eh, just very, very briefly, just now. Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, okay? So we've got those verses. And what is it that God is promising? I wonder, did you notice God is obviously promising a people, an offspring, a people or a person? That is one of the, the things that God's promises in this covenant. And we've already had that with the seed in Genesis 3. Remember, it's going to build on it. Then we have a, a place, don't we? There's going to be a land that the Lord's going to give Abraham in, in verse 7 of chapter 12 as well. And the nation needs a place too to stay. And there in verse 3, God says that there will be a blessing. A blessing. I mean, or cursing. And we know that the blessing is going to be associated with God's presence. And cursing, if you're disobedient, you'll be out of God's presence. It's a development of what we saw in Genesis 3.15. We get a, a glimpse of a little bit more of what the seed will do. That he would gather a people in one place to bring blessing and to be a blessing to other nations. To all nations. It's for everybody. Just like Genesis 3 and Genesis 12, there is hope in the immediate story, but it points forward to a greater hope and expectation. So as we read Genesis and the Old Testament, it's important to always have in our minds of the immediate situation, but also what is being pointed forward to. What's out for people, for the nation of Israel, how they are situated where they are, but also what's out for a seed, a king, a hope for a leader that's going to be a hope for the nation and for the nations. Watch out for places, the land where they are. Why are they in the land? Why aren't they in the land? Well, it's, we need to watch out for blessing. How individuals like Joseph can bring blessing. But how obedience brings blessing in God's presence. And how disobedience will bring cursing without God's presence. 
As we read Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament, we should keep some of these things in our minds. For those who stand against the Lord, whether they are direct descendants or not, they are cursed. But those who have faith in the Lord are blessed. These covenants is showing God's sovereign lordship over all things. You know, covenants aren't agreements that man makes with God. Adam or Abraham or Noah or David didn't sit down with God and, and flesh it out and negotiate for ages like Brexit. No, it's all God. God decided, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, before the foundations of the world, this decision between Father, Son and Spirit is where our salvation rests. It depends on God. It is where our salvation comes from. And it is where it depends that the Father would send his Son, that the Spirit would live in us. Our hope of eternity and the promises of God stem from Genesis 3 and to Abraham and onwards. There are huge chunks of the New Testament that help us understand the Old and vice versa. It's one book after all. Of course, it all fits together. In Galatians 3, Paul writes, If you are Christ's, if you are a Christian, then you are Abraham's offspring. Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. It's faith in Jesus that makes us one of God's children. So as we encounter this development of grace to Abraham in Genesis 12, the promises that God makes to Abraham, it's these promises that we need to remember. And we are reminded of them at different points. And at different points we get a deeper and a fuller understanding of God's promises to Abraham. The covenant is mentioned further and in a little bit more detail. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. The Lord passes through the pieces of the sacrifices uh, and the Lord alone passes through them, and that's important. But we see that this is a, the same covenant, don't we? But in more detail. In verse 5, the offspring, how many of them are there going to be? What is the number of stars in the sky or the, the sand on the seashore? Or in verse 18, we get this picture of a land. But we get the dimensions of the land here. So it's people and land, it's the same covenant, but in more detail. We get a richer and deeper, fuller understanding of what will happen. But also, really importantly, the covenant depends on the Lord. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. You see, in a covenant, a lesser king would promise to obey or, the, or keep the conditions of the larger king or the more important king. And they would walk between the pieces of the sacrifices symbolically saying, if I break this, this is what will happen to me. As a reminder of how serious the whole thing was. But here, God says the covenant depends on me. Not on you, Abraham, or Abram, and we'll see why. It's God who's going to keep this covenant. Then in the chapter 16, Abraham doesn't wait. 
and has a son Ishmael. And in Genesis 17 we have the clarification of this covenant. In verse 1 of chapter 17 we are told that the expectations is obedience. That Abraham is to be obedient, walk before me and be blameless. In verse 7 of this covenant it's the same covenant about this offspring but it's an everlasting covenant in other words Abraham your offspring is going to be more and more and more and more and more and more it's never going to end we get a picture in David's covenant with the Lord of an everlasting kingship in his family it it comes from this too and then we have the sign which here is circumcision and pointing to what Christ will do shedding his blood and well we keep this covenant and baptizing our children pointing to what Jesus will do if they have faith that's exactly what circumcision did to you the sign that if they have faith their sins will be forgiven see it's Abraham's obedience Although it stands out in different bits, that does not earn his promise from God. The promise is already secured by God because God's going to keep the covenant. But in Genesis 22, Abraham shows his trust in God's word to him. He obeys God's, God's word, then he takes up his one and only son for this seed, this offspring, to sacrifice him. The Lord intervenes, obviously pointing us to another son that would have wood on his back going up the hill to die. Jesus dying for our sin. Abraham's faith is displayed in Jesus. The Lord very graciously and sovereignly calls Abraham, Abram, out of Ur to trust in the Lord. And the Lord articulates and blesses in this covenant binds himself to Abraham and Abraham must persist in faithfulness he has to obey and well that obedience what that looks like becomes clear as Moses has given the law covenants build on one another as we read Genesis as you read it Read it and marvel at the Lord's faithfulness to you, this covenant. For how often does Abraham fail and Jacob? How often does it all seem a mess where God's people are utterly unfaithful, yet God is faithful? Genesis focuses on the birth of a nation and the birth of a, a king, a kingly seed. This is a repeated theme throughout the Old Testament. People, a nation and an individual. How individuals, they seem like they're going to be leading Israel. That they're going to be the one that leads them. And how they feel, but they're all pictures of Jesus. The people are pictures of us following him. There's a land, a place where Israel will go into and conquer. Pointing us to paradise in the new heavens and the new earth. Where there will be ultimate blessing with God's presence because we are one of Abraham's children for we have faith in Christ or if we don't we'll be without God's presence 
and it'll be a life of cursing. Throughout scripture there's an immediate reality but also a future hope. I hope this brief outline of some of the themes in Genesis is really helpful for you. Remember all of scripture points to Jesus. He is the seed that will crush Satan. He is the one through whom all nations will be blessed. It's the children of Abraham through faith that will be countless as the stars in the sky. It is Christ who will gather all his people together in one place, under one king, a nation if you like. And he will bring a new creation where all of God's people will be living in the very presence of God. God is gracious towards us. Us who have faith in the serpent slayer, Jesus. God remembers and shows his faithfulness to the covenant throughout the Old Testament and into the New, gifting us the same Jesus to bring his people into his presence. <laughs>